human being can deliver on what you most desperately need. And no marriage can meet that need. No marriage alone can meet that need. Uh, asking for your spouse to give you that personal sort of happiness, fulfillment, security, whatever you desire, right? that in the end of the day, leaning on them for that will turn them into a God. And the Lord has a way of crushing all of our false gods for us. And that's sometimes what he'll do in our marriages. And so while we're, we're often, often working toward our personal happiness, the great thing in the gospel and in the God's kindness is even if we get engaged in relationships and marry, sometimes for reasons that aren't all holy and good, while we're often working toward our own personal happiness, the great news of the gospel and the kindness of God is he's taking that personal quest and he's using it um, as a means and an instrument of our own holiness, which is what we most need. And that's what the Lord does for us. So one author put it like this. In marriage, we're signing up to be an instrument of grace and one who is not yet a grace graduate. Now, if you had told that to me when I was engaged, I would have looked at you like, I don't even know what that means. I am signing up to be an instrument of grace and someone who's not a grace graduate. But that's exactly what we do in marriage. We sign up. And God intends us to be instruments of grace and those who are not yet complete in grace in their, own, in their own sanctification. And that's what we do in marriage. But that's not often how we uh, approach marriage. And so in that sense, human marriage is not the final paradise that we long for. But God uses it to prepare us for that final paradise that he is uh, preparing for us, that is to come. But if we're going to understand that, we've got to spend a few minutes just thinking a little bit about um, God's design for marriage, thinking a little bit about roles and responsibilities. Um, and so we want to do a, a sort of little biblical theology of marriage, if you will. I fear there's a little more principle than, um, than practice in some of these next comments, but maybe in some of the Q&A, if maybe we can draw out like some of the, okay, so what does this mean practically? I'll hit a few things, but... Um, the reality is you can't extrapolate to practice if you don't have good biblical principles and a foundation. So you always got to start there. So if we begin with Genesis 1, um, if you know the story of Genesis 1, you know, God has created the heavens and the earth, and he's preparing all that which is desolate and uninhabitable. He's preparing that to be a home for his people. And then as he's creating, he comes to that crowning work of creation in the creation of, of men and women. And we read in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So I think it's important to start here because as we think about marriage, the Bible doesn't first start with the differences between men and women or husbands and wives, but it actually starts with their fundamental equality. That's the first place the Bible starts. It starts with men and women as being created equal. So equal in the image of God. What does it mean to be equal in the image of God? Well, uh, the way if you, if you continue reading through the scriptures, you think carefully about that nature, what does it mean to be made in God's image? There's sort of three aspects, three components to it. One of them is, is a structural component. So being made in the image of God, uniquely men and women are, it means in some way we structurally 
represent God in a way in which nothing else in creation does. In the sense, we're volitional. We, we have a will. We make decisions. Uh, we're moral creatures. We're creative creatures. We're rational creatures who think and build libraries and do stuff like this in a way in which other creatures don't do. So there's a structural component to who we are as those made in God's image. But there's a functional aspect of what God calls us to do. Secondly, it's being created in his image. So if we keep reading in, in uh, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in how we live together and in how God intends men, men and women to rule together, there's a functional aspect to what it means to be made in God's image. We're we're royal, actually, figures. We're God's vice regents that are meant to rule over this kingdom that he has established. And third, there's a relational component to being made in God's image. So this is the Trinity. There's perfect fellowship within the Trinity. So there's a relational component between men and women and between others as those made in his image. Now, in the ancient Near East, and I don't know how it would work here within Dubai today, um, but the only one made in the image of God within ancient Near East cultures was usually like the king. Maybe a priestly class would have been said to be made in the image of the God. So one of the things that we miss often when we read Genesis 1, but would have been so striking to those who first read it, was it's not just the king is the one who made in God's image. It's not just a special priestly class that's made in God's image. It's not just the men who are made in God's image. It's all of the men and all of the women are equally made in his image, which is a radical thing. If you're reading this centuries, millennia ago, it may be given some of your own cultures that may push against some of the cultural stereotypes, but all equally men and women made in God's image, which means none of us should feel proud or superior because we're a man, and none of us should feel disappointed. None of us should feel inferior because we're a woman. So if God sees us as equal in value, that should forever settle the question of our personal worth. So if God has created us equal as men and women, that forever ought to settle that question of our personal worth, regardless of what culture says, regardless of how our spouse treats us. We need to know how God thinks of us, and that's how he considers us. But a second thing to note from Scripture, yes, we're, we're created equal, but we're not identical. So there is a quality but we're also not identical. And we see that particularly in the language men and women as we get into marriage, how we function. And there are some functional distinctions within marriage. So if we go on into, into creation in Genesis 2, we read in Genesis 2, you're maybe familiar with these verses, Genesis 2, 15 to 24. So we sort of on Google Earth, like big picture, God's creation. Now like the street, Google Street View, like we, we zoom in, right? And we're looking at this creation of men and women. And we read here in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And you want to remember those two words. So we place the man in the garden to work and to watch over and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. God is very clear. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Therefore, I shall make another man for him. <laughs> no, of course, we laugh, right? That's not what it says. <laughs> it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. 
And the Lord God formed out of the ground from every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky and every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So at this point, Adam is quite distraught. He's been promised this helper. He longs for this helper. He needs this helper. And his helper hasn't showed up. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man. He slept. God took one of the ribs, closed the flesh of that place. The Lord God made the rib he had uh, taken from the man into a woman, brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And this one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. And both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So those were wonderfully glorious verses. If you're Adam, man, life didn't get much better than that moment right there. Um, so equal in image, but not identical in function, because one of the things we see there is that Adam is the head, and his wife Eve is that corresponding helper. So there's that notion of head, and there's that notion of helper. Um, now, we could, I could go through the text and explain how we see headship displayed, and the authority to name the animals speaks to that headship, being created first speaks to some of that headship. But even with all that, that headship does not mean a lack of equality. There's still equality, but there's some functional distinctions. And so I think just for the, how many of how many are husbands here, just to get a sense? Okay, so many of the men. Um, this is particularly useful even if you're not married, because this may help settle some things in your mind that need settling. Would have helped me. Um, but a word I think about headship for husbands. What we need to see is that God gives us a very clear task as the head. So go back to Genesis 2.15, that command, what do we do? We're to work and to watch over the garden. Now, we're in a desert, and I recognize most people don't probably do a lot of gardening. Like, this isn't, who's from England? Yeah, I always think of the English gardens. Like, <laughs> like study disorder of those gardens, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I recognize a lot of gardening. Um, when it's referring to the garden here, it's not just referring to gardening and plants. It's referring to all of the care and all of the attention given to the Lord's kingdom and to what he called Adam and Eve to particularly rule over. So that word for work, you're to work, it means to serve, to labor, to cultivate. The garden was the world. It was the realm by which Adam was meant to live out his God-given responsibilities, which means we as husbands are called to cultivate those fields that God has put us in charge over. Um, that's not just things. That's not just our vocation. Right? That's people as well. We're called to cultivate and to nurture and care for people too. So you may have been taught in the culture you're from that women are the ones doing the nurturing. So even in America, the family, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, um, but I grew up in a home where the dad worked and made lots of money and the mom stayed home and cared for the kids. So I just assumed that's what women do. They nurture and dads aren't a part of that work. But in the scriptures, it's even clear right here from Genesis 2 that God intends for the husband to be deeply at work cultivating, sort of tilling the soil 
of the hearts of all those entrusted to his care, which would mean his wife, it would mean his children. He needs to be as adept at that as he is in pursuing and cultivating his own career. And I would not have understood that as a non-Christian. I didn't understand that when I first became a Christian, hence a lot of the early difficulties in our marriage. Um, so, and you know, we have this notion of strong and silent in America. I don't know, your own culture may have, you know, the husbands are just, again, they're, they're off to the side. Um, but this is what the Bible helps blow up. We need to be at work in cultivating the lives of those under our care, which means if you're a husband, that's not just your wife's job. It's not your wife's job to initiate praying together as a family. It's not just your wife's job to initiate the spiritual care of any children you have. Like as a husband, that is first and foremost and principally your job, and you have to take ownership and responsibility for that because God's going to hold you accountable for it. Right? We often abdicate, but God calls us to take um, responsibility. So devotions, whatever it must be, um, that's what we must do. And so you could be killing it at work. Uh, the, um, that's another way of saying you could be doing excellent at work. <laughs> uh, just as I said, I'm like, they probably may not know what that scripture means. Um, crushing it at work. Uh, no, you could be doing really well. And this is our early marriage. So I'm like, I'm going to work six days a week. I'm going to make lots of money so that I can provide for my wife. And I assume she would be very happy with that. My wife actually grew up in a Christian home where she understood husbands were supposed to do a little more than merely bring some money home. And so she was always looking for me to take some leadership in ways in which I just didn't take any leadership. Um, and I assumed I was a success as a husband, and the world probably would have thought of me as a success, you know, because she had everything she needed. But in God's eyes, I was not a failure because I wasn't taking that initiative, and I wasn't leading and caring in that way. So we're called to, to work. We're also called to, to watch over, to keep. And that, you know, that verb there, that basic meaning is to guard and to protect. It's to guard and protect. So it's often used of soldiers. It's used of shepherds with sheep. It's used of priests. It's even used of God himself as the one who's the, the, the one who works and uh, rather watches over and keeps his people. He's the spiritual tower. He's that strong fortress for his people. So the image of a husband is he sort of, he plows the field and he bears the sword. You may have heard the expression protect and provide. That's sort of the notion, until we get that notion. Headship is authority, and this is the key thing. Biblically speaking, headship is authority exercised in the selfless care of others. And that's what we so often miss. It's authority exercised in the selfless care of others. And we know we're on track with that because as we move from the first Adam to the second Adam, Jesus Christ... When there's a debate later in Luke 22 amongst the disciples about which is going to be the greatest among them, Jesus responds in Luke 22, 26, and he says, hey, I, I know how the world looks at authority. Authority is all about how you can amass power and privilege to get what you want. And I'm seeing it right now. You're all arguing which is the greatest amongst you. But let me tell you, he says, it should not be so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, the leaders, the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines, but I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus takes that notion of power and hierarchy and he turns it on its head. Right? It's not 
um, that leaders are there so that they can amass power to get what they want, right? to build up their own image. Rather, a true biblical leader is one who's willing to lay down his life for the benefit and for um, the growth and for the prosperity of those under his charge. So that's sort of the essential building block when you think about masculinity in the scriptures, authority exercised in the selfless care of others. So I think if you're, a, if you're a husband here tonight, it's just think about your own authority. Does that describe your authority? That which is exercised as obviously in the selfless care of others. Right? Would your wife say that about you? Would she say that's how you exercise your authority? Would your kids say that's how you exercise your authority and that selfless care. And that's a good question to ask. And hopefully you've cultivated a kind of marriage where your wife can look at you and say, honey, you know I love you, but the answer is not really right now. That doesn't actually describe so much. I would love to see it more, maybe in some of these ways, and to welcome that and to pray about that and to seek to put that into practice. You know, a word about helping, because we thought about headship and we thought about the woman as the helper. Um, in Genesis 2.20. And do you, is there an expression here, mommy's little helper? Maybe. So in, in America, it's like the mommy's little helper. So in effect, like, if the woman's doing work, you know, she may have a young daughter, and the young daughter's mommy's little helper. But of course, she might assist with something, but she would never actually do anything because she'd just mess it up. Because she's a little kid. She doesn't really know what she's doing. Um, and sometimes we come to help her, and that word almost feels demeaning. Like, we really can't be entrusted with doing the important stuff. We can just be a helper to the one who does the really important stuff. Maybe it even sounds sort of condescending you know, to be a helper. Um, but here's where, if we know our Bibles, over half the uses of that word helper are actually in reference to God himself. So when you go through the Old Testament, over half those uses of helper are in reference to God himself. He is the helper of his people. People. So God is actually the one who nourishes and sustains and strengthens. So when God gives this responsibility of helper to the woman, he's actually dignifying her with a very distinguished and powerful task. And we often miss that, perhaps, with our how we might think of that word helper. Um, and if you're a woman, you've probably figured out by now, men need lots of help. <laughs> uh, yeah. When all you got to do is go into a dorm or an apartment of all guys, and it becomes immediately apparent that men need considerable help. Um, you know, if men, yeah, if, if men didn't need help, you know, I joked when I read, you know, he, God created just two atoms. He didn't do that. He created Adam and Eve. He created a man and a woman, and that's not an accident. Um, because helper doesn't speak to inadequacy, but indispensability. So it's not inadequate, it's actually indispensable for the task. The, the way the woman is to function, her compassion, her intuition, strength, intelligence, what she brings to the table, that's meant all to be an indispensable ally in sort of fulfilling the creation mandate, Genesis 1, that God has given to his people. And we see this as we go through the scriptures. So if you think of the Hebrew midwives, right, who defied Pharaoh, if you think of Rahab, who harbored the Hebrews and helped to ensure their victories, if you think of Esther, who, who single-handedly, with great boldness and courage, she uniquely prevented Israel really from being wiped off the face of the earth. Obviously, God is sovereign, but he's working through uniquely that one woman. 
or the women who were the first there to be witnesses to Christ's resurrection, or even Phoebe, the one who Paul entrusts with carrying his letter, right, Rome. Like, so women obviously indispensable, not just in the home, but in the work of God's kingdom, wherever that might be. And so in scriptures, that's the role that women are to play. Um, they were created, women were after the strong helper of God himself, which means as women, and it means as men, they're not to be treated as objects or slaves or trophies or eye candy or any of the ways in which we can sometimes demean, really, the creation that God has intended for women. Now, that's a perfect picture in Genesis 2, but you know in Genesis 3, it goes wrong and it goes sideways very quickly. So we have this beautiful picture of bliss comes to a grinding halt because Satan targets Eve. And just to be clear, he doesn't, in my opinion, target Eve because she was weaker. He doesn't target her because she was inferior. He targets her because Satan sought to undermine the very authority structures in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created as good. He worked to undermine those. So notice what you have. So God created these authority structures where the man was to submit himself to God and to God's word. Right? Don't eat from this. Right? Submit yourself to me. Submit yourself to my word. The woman is to accept lovingly the husband's leadership. And both together are to exercise his dominion over creation. That's what it's supposed to be. But what do we get instead with Genesis 3? The woman listens to the creature. The man listens to the woman and neither of them listen to God. It's an utter upending. It's a complete reversal of the goodness of what God had intended in those authority structures. Um, and that brings us to Genesis 3.16, where if you know that verse, when we think about some of the curses that come as a result of the fall, we read there, he said to the woman, I'll intensify your labor pains. You will bear children. It will be with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And sometimes we get confused because we think desire, and desire is often a word that we would use positively. But this word in Hebrew, particularly it's how it's used even in the next chapter in Genesis 4, that's not a positive desire. That's more of what you might say a usurping desire, a frustrated desire. Mm -hmm. That Genesis 4, 7, there's an antagonism. So those who are, who are meant to be complements to one another, they actually become opponents Right here in Genesis 3, they become opponents of one another. And the husband is going to domineer either in his passivity or in other forms of aggression. And so we're seeing, yeah, we're still those who reflect God's image, but as a result of the fall, we do so imperfectly. So you can think of a, a car, you know, where the wheels are out of alignment, right? The clutch is always grinding, whatever it might be. Like, we're that car, and it's just not running properly. It's not running well. The Lord has to, has to redeem that. And of course, that's what he does. As you get into the New Testament, and as you get into the Lord's work, and into the New Covenant, the Lord does redeem, and he does redeem marvelously. But what we see is that he doesn't obliterate these functional distinctions between men and women. In redemption, he redeems those distinctions, those distinctions that we perverted. Right? He redeems them for good. And so in Ephesians 5, Paul doesn't say to wives, hey, you know what? You're liberated now. You're freed from your husbands. You can ignore them. You can pursue your own wills and callings. He doesn't say that. No, he says in Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, that submission doesn't need subservience. 
doesn't mean servitude, it doesn't mean in that worldly sense, but it's a gracious yielding of one's heart to the authority of her husband and head. And right there we find ourselves back in the garden where God intended us to be. And to the, to, the, uh, to the husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we run right over that. But if we think of that call to love our wives as Christ loved the church, most men should stop and say, I should never be a husband. That's a huge calling. Love Christ, love, love our wives as Christ loves the church. That is an enormous responsibility. And if we understand anything of how Christ loved his church with that kind of selfless love, the way he for, yeah, he forbearing his church tremendously. Well, then we ought to take that to heart, um, and that's what husbands are called to do. They're called to love their wives in that way, cleansing or washing with the water of the word. He's later called to nourish and cherish his wife. What are we back into again? You're hearing all the language of the garden, working, watching over the servant leader who cultivates and protects, right? Just as Christ does for his brides and church. So that's something what God intends for us, men and women, to be as male and female in marriage. Sometimes, and I found this where I am, I can say something positive, and the congregation will be like, yeah, yeah, I agree with that, that's great. And I say, well, we recognize if it means this, it doesn't mean this. And they're like, wait, Brad, wait a minute, I didn't like what you just said. So sometimes it's helpful, like, yes, this is positively what God has laid out in marriage, but it also means, like, not this. So headship, therefore, means not this. And when we, again, just to come back a little bit, we think about headship, we think about power, privilege, priority. Um, it means I can get what I want. Uh, but just, again, to see, even as you see in Ephesians 5, when the Bible speaks of headship, it's not about self-interest. Headship is not, hey, I'm enjoying my TV show. you got to get up and serve me in whatever way you might want to be served. That's not what headship means. Husbands, to love like Christ practically means you will often be subordinating your own preferences mm -hmm. to that of your wife. You will be laying down your preferences mm -hmm. to that of your wife. So very practically, right? she may want to eat Italian and you may want to eat Indian, whatever it might be. But you know what? I think often as a husband, to love like Christ is to say, yeah, the point is us getting together. The food is deeply secondary. If this is a blessing to you, if this serves you, absolutely, let's do it. Not like, okay, great, I guess we'll go to Italian again, whatever you might say. Um, you know, it may be like simple things, like all the preferences, movies. You might want action, she wants drama, who knows, maybe it's the reverse, right? Don't play the stereotypes. <laughs> My wife grew up with three brothers who are very, like, boy male. So it's great, because I'll be looking through, like, Netflix, and she's like, let's do that one. Yes, all right. <laughs> but because, as men, we're sinful and we're lazy, uh, and we like to be served, just in areas of preference, it is, in my mind, clearly stupid, often sin, to play the headship card on matters of preference. Mm -hmm. To play that card like, I'm your head, get in line. Mm -hmm. That is a great way to crush your spouse, mm -hmm. particularly in areas of preference. Mm -hmm. um, I think if that's how you're exercising headship and authority, you haven't the foggiest idea 
and how the Bible talks about headship and authority. And I'd encourage you to take a longer, closer, harder look at what we talked about at Jesus' own ministry and let that begin to do some work in your own heart. Um, because the thing about headship is everyone thinks they want it. So in America, it's all about how do I get under authority structures? I want to be the one in authority. And that's, you know, Me Too movement. That's even in workplace and the rest. Everyone thinks they want headship because they want the power to make the decisions. But genuine headship, when you're talking about the home or whether you're talking about the church or whether or not you're talking about in the workplace, it's fundamentally, headship is about being responsible for the welfare of another person. That's what headship is about. Headship, therefore, doesn't first ask, what do I want, but what does that person need? That's the first question a good boss will ask. Not just what do I want, but what do they need in order to fill the task that they have been given to do. And true leadership actually grasps that responsibility. It grasps that headship is about sacrifice and service, which means genuine leaders, leaders that understand the mantle of leadership, they're very reluctant to take it up because they know the burdens inherent in it and they know the calling that's assigned to it. And if you're not married, you want to think long and hard about whether or not you're willing, willing to bear that burden and to, to carry that mantle, so to speak, in marriage. So I know in, in our lives, um, I was terrible at leading early on. And then when I started to like, oh, no, I, I can't abdicate. Like, I actually have to lead. Then sometimes I just almost indiscriminately like put my foot down on something, which was terrible and confusing for my wife. It's like you've never gotten involved in any decision. All of a sudden you just make a decision like it's done and there's no conversation. Uh, when we were going to move from D.C. to Arkansas, uh, we were actually trying to get back to Northern California. So we're from coastal Northern California, Santa Cruz, California. Anyone know where Santa Cruz is? Just, yeah, one or two. It's, the, it's right near Silicon Valley, so it's sort of high-tech capital, but it's on the water, it's on the beach. Gorgeous, fun, the church is a mess out there. We were trying to get out that way. And it looked really positive, like we were gonna land at a church in Northern California. But then at like the last, toward the end of the process, it stalled, it got a little weird, it slowed down, and this church calls from Arkansas. And I don't know what Arkansas would be like in terms of one of the Emirates, and it may not be, we may not want yeah, Arkansas is like... You drive through it to get to another Emirates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so just so we have an interstate system, you know, your freeways. Where I live was the last metropolitan area in the country to be connected to the interstate system. It's backward, as many would view backwardness. Um, and so when this when this church called and it had all the things I valued, it was just in the wrong place. And I thought, man, if I'm a Christian, like I can't be a geographical snob. So I'm like, I've got to be willing to at least consider if it has all these things that a pastor should value. But I looked at my wife, and we've been exhaustedly just working in California, thinking we were moving there. And I said, hey, we got to visit this church in Arkansas. And she gave me that look like, no, I am not going. And I prayed, I reflected, and I came back and I said, we've got to go. And I need you to go with me. And it was a busy season. And she gave me that look like, I'm going to go, but you better know what you're doing. Because this is requiring a lot. And in God's kindness, the Lord, I think, rewarded that careful leadership of having a conversation, talking, praying.
but then saying, listen, I think it's going to be in the best interest of you and me if we do this. Now, when it came to execution, I went back to how like, I was early in marriage. And I got thinking about ministry, thinking about what needed to be done. And we had talked about trying to finish off the summer in Washington, D.C. with our kids before transitioning to a new work and a new ministry. But the church wanted me there immediately. And I didn't put my wife's interests first. Now, I was an idiot. Because five years from now, no one is going to remember whether or not I got there August 15th or October 15th. But I was prioritizing the ministry, and I leaned in and effectively said, get it done, which meant she largely packed the house on her own. She's an incredibly competent woman. Largely. Look, see, she says largely. I think you mean exclusively. Get your adverb right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, right? So, um, yeah, and, and that was a terrible way to serve, right? That was a terrible way to express headship. So I started well, and then I totally bombed. And as husbands, we do that, and we just got to confess it. And confession in marriage means, we may have to cover this, it means not making excuses, right? Not claiming to be the victim. It just means owning the responsibility of making a bad decision and saying, please forgive me, and leaving it at that. Like, just owning it. And we know it's like to do that, right? We don't like to do it, but we have to do it. Um, and sometimes when husbands think about the responsibility, they just back off it. They're like, I don't know what that looks like. That sounds too great. Um, and they become passive. And so maybe in your own culture, I don't, I don't know how it plays itself out. In America, we see both of them. And I guess you see both of them here, where sometimes husbands assume authority means they're going to be sort of power-hungry and aggressive and demand what they want. But then you're, you may get some, and it may be some of your younger Christian, uh, younger, sort of younger in age, where they're assuming the best way to respect their spouse or because they're frankly just lazy and they don't want to exercise authority biblically, they just pull back and they revert to passivity. Um, and uh, they sit on the sidelines. Uh, but what you need to remember as a husband is the root of passivity. At the root of passivity, it's the same thing. It's the same root as that of the power-hungry. At the root of the passive husband and the power-hungry husband, the root of both is selfishness. That lies at the root of both of those, of those problems. It's an unwillingness to do the hard thing in the service of someone else. Not willing to take that forward. Not willing to lean in in that way. Um, but that's what husbands are called to do. Now, submission, what that doesn't mean, when we think about women, it doesn't mean a woman is to empty her brain. It doesn't mean she becomes a, a servant to someone else merely. Uh, it doesn't mean um, that she has to sort of give herself up and just relinquish any sense of, it, of her being an individual person. No, her submission is a thoughtful and it's a derivative submission um, as one who's first submits and is defined by her submission to Christ. So in the same way, our husband's not to be an autocrat, right? The wife's not a doormat. And the Bible understands that. Jesus explicitly removed self-exaltation from, from leadership, but he also removed servility from the notion of submission. And we see that in his own life. Um, so women who are strong, they're not meant to be feared. They're actually a great blessing. So my wife is a very strong woman. Her dad's 100% Croatian. Um, so there's lots of Balkan blood. And if you know the Balkans, what do they do? They're passionate. They tell you exactly what I'm English, like through and through. So the second, like, 
the voice raised a little bit. I don't know what to do. I'm just like, I'm sitting down. <laughs> but that passion and that strength, that aids and serves me incredibly well as a husband. And as a husband, you want that kind of thoughtful, caring, intelligent strength in a wife. Um, and submission doesn't work against that. Properly understood actually undergirds it. Um, now, there are limits to women's submission. Um, so they don't submit to other men. Uh, they submit only to their husband. Um, they don't ever submit to abuse. So being submissive to your husband does never, does not mean, it never means that you must therefore submit to abuse, uh, particularly physical abuse. So if you know of a woman, maybe within the church body, who struggles with that in her own marriage, or you yourself have struggled with a husband who's been physically abusive, this is where you go to your elders and you let your elders help you work through that because we're not called to be submissive to abuse in the scriptures. Um, God has ordained elders for that purpose to assist us. You know, if you're, if you're single, um, one good thing to hear and recognize is it's interesting. The New Testament actually relativizes in some sense the priority of marriage. So we sometimes think here, it was not good for men to be alone, helper, therefore, like, we all should be married, um, and marriage is the preferable thing. But if you know anything about 1 Corinthians 7, or you know how the Bible ends in Revelation 21, actually, singleness is a tremendous thing, um, because marriage won't solve the problem of your loneliness. The reality is, I know many people who are far lonelier in marriage than they were ever single. And they didn't think carefully about that as they pursued marriage. Uh, the Bible understands the deepest longings of the human heart, right? Jesus was single, never had a family. He didn't need to be married, didn't need to be mom or dad to be fully human. He was fully human in being a single person and in fellowship with the Creator. So even the Bible's most celebrated passage on love, what do you think that passage might be? The passage you often hear at weddings. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 13. I know I'm overseas when I hear 1 Corinthians. <laughs> 1 Corinthians, as I would say. But 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, either way. 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not alone. I know. It occurred to me, like, wait, I think you're American. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Paul waxes poetically. So even if you go to weddings where the person who's presiding over the wedding, even if it's not a Christian wedding, I've seen many a non-Christian wedding, they still read 1 Corinthians 13, um, and we hear it, but recognize that context has nothing to do with human marriage. Not the slightest bit. Everyone takes it out of context, they rip it, they don't understand it. Um, yeah, sure, there are implications for marriage in 1 Corinthians 13, but it's the kind of love that ought to be expressed within a church fellowship. Paul's dealing with the local church and with all the ways the church is, is messed up and thinking about how they're to exercise their gifts in love for one another. That's the function, and that's, the, that's how 1 Corinthians 13 works. And that's the kind of fellowship you want to see, and you don't need to be married to know that fellowship. And singles commit hugely and significantly to that kind of a fellowship. Um, and I'm sure you want to see that here, Come and Hope, are the same thing. Because Jesus and Paul remind us, right? Paul himself, he may have been married at one point, but clearly it seems and by the time we get to him in the New Testament, he's not. Neither children or marriage are required to be fully masculine or fully feminine. Mm -hmm. um, neither are required. And that one day, all human marriages come to an end. 
Some of you will think quietly, well, I know, but let me put it like this. There are days when all of us think, praise God for that. <laughs> it's true. So I know my wife loves me deeply, and I know there are days she wakes up and she says, I don't know how I ever married him, and I'll be grateful for the day when this is over. That's not the only thing to think. Of course not. But that sometimes happens because I'm a sinner, and I hurt her. And you get hurt in your own relationships, and you have those moments too. Um, but there will come a day when we'll walk another aisle, right? But we'll be wed to the Lord Himself, Amen. and we'll be wed for eternity. And that's what our human marriages are meant to prepare us uh, for that day.